Our sermon text this morning is uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1. This is probably one of, if not the worst chapter breaks in the Bible, so hang in there with that. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Well, what is a woman? It seems to be the question everyone's asking these days. According to Romans 1, that question would only surface in a culture given over to perverse passions and depraved minds. No one ought be proud that we're asking it. But I, but I do want to pillage the question. Like uh, salvaging old parts on a rusty jalopy, I want to harvest a word from that question, and that word is, is. The question implies an isness about woman. If we medically retrofit and reverse engineer a man, do we then have a woman? Or, or is there an isness about woman that cannot be engineered, that transcends her parts, that is unseen and immeasurable? What we're asking is about ontology, what a thing is, essentially. What a thing or what a person is regardless of how much we might otherwise mongrelize it or him or her. And so I, as strange as it might be, I want to harvest the ontological bent of the question to ask, what is a church? If we slap a steeple on a building, do we have a church? If we tack on the word church at the end of a brand name, is is that a church now? If, if I join up with people doing churchy things, am I part of now a church? Is the church the sum of the list of its members? What, what do we mean by evangelical Presbyterian church? Meditating on Ephesians 2, Eugene Peterson wrote, Paul wants us to understand and then participate in church as it is, as the living Christ. He wants us to understand church, first of all, and primarily in terms of ontology, its being, not its function. There are, of course, functions. Things happen, things are done, there are jobs to do, there are tasks to be obeyed. But if we don't grasp church as Christ's body, we will always be dissatisfied, impatient, angry, dismayed, or disgusted with what we see. We'll never see the elegance and intricacy of church. We will entirely miss the praise of his glory. We will fail to discern what is going on right before our eyes in the congregation. A great deal of what is observable in church is simply incomprehensible as church if we have no ontology of the church. So I want to overlay that this morning on 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7. Paul seemingly shoehorns this passage in the middle of a discourse on his ministry credentials and on some travel plans. It seems that Paul is hoping to reestablish his personal relationship with the Corinthian Christians, but their behavior is making it very hard to do so. It's, being hard, uh, it's, it's become hard for him to remain on good terms with them. And Paul reminded them now about what a church, the church, their church, actually 
is and why that necessitates their mutual fellowship. Now, verse is 14a, the little first part of verse 14, and 7 1 form two sides of one exhortation to the Corinthian church. Verse 14a is the negative, do not, and 7 1 is the stated positively, let's do this. We're going to get to those later. Sandwiched in between 14 and 7 1 are these, uh, the, these indicatives, we call them, the, the isness of church, signaling. It's being signaled by this one little word in verse 14, for, F-O-R, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for. And this launches this whole litany of indicatives about what the church, a church, your church, is inherently. And Paul got at the the isness, the, the churchness of the church, with five rhetorical and antithetical questions. Uh, to each of those questions, the answer is a resounding nothing. And all the questions, they sort of build, they culminate in his pinnacle question in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And he provided the most succinct answer, jam-packed with an eternity's worth of truth. What is a church? And at least here Paul would say, we are, and that we there is emphasized as if he says we, we are the temple of the living God. It looked like, as I could tell, that you've recently gone through or maybe are going through Hebrews, and so this will likely be fresh. All of the old covenant, tent and poles, tabernacle, brick and mortar, temple, all of that and all of what it represented is fulfilled. It is embodied, it is incarnate in Christ's new covenant church. The living God has a living temple built with living stones around a living cornerstone. Now for the sake of time, we're going to drill down on verses 16 through 18. And those are, as you could probably tell, a mashup of Old Testament texts filling out what God expects of his living temple. What is the temple of the living God? Which Paul says we are. It's not what we do. We are inherently the temple of the living God. And we can summarize what Paul unpacks there under three headings. The first identity of the church, verse 16, is that we are God's dwelling place. Tons of texts that Paul is sort of putting together and connecting. You see, during the Exodus, you know this, God placed his tabernacle among Israel. Remember? In other words, God promised to travel with his people. And they would pack up his tent as surely as they packed up their tents. God will be with us. Wherever we go, he's going, he's traveling with us. And when Solomon built his brick-and-mortar temple, God settled down with his people. God built a city exclusively for them, and he set up permanent residence with them. Paul used this word for dwell elsewhere in the New Testament for the indwelling of the Spirit, for the indwelling of the Word of Christ, for the indwelling of faith. 
And so Paul, if we connect all those together, is drawing out this new covenant fulfillment of old covenant types. Through faith, the indwelling spirit of Christ is God taking up permanent residence among his people. In them and among them, God with us. John picked up on the same theme. He saw the risen Christ. Remember this in Revelation 2? He sees the the living Christ walking among the seven golden lampstands, patrolling the churches. He's with them. And in Revelation 21.3, John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. That sounds a lot like Paul in 2 Corinthians. God no longer has a static or a dead temple to which the nations come. God now has a dynamic living temple that goes out to all the nations. It's an active living temple. It's everywhere. Brothers and sisters, First Presbyterian Church is a wing in the living God's spiritual house. You are where Almighty God lives. And wherever we are, God is. That's one description that Paul uses. Verse 17 is another one. We are, what he means by we are the temple of the living God. We're God's dwelling place. Verse 17, we're God's holy priesthood. In Isaiah 52, 11, from which Paul is drawing here, God's people were to leave Babylon and all the idolatry that it represented to be a people wholly devoted to him. Isaiah envisioned a new exodus where, where God's people in it, and it would leave as they left Egypt. Now they would leave Babylon back to Jerusalem. Only now they're not going back as liberated slaves on the run. They are victorious warriors marching under the banner of Messiah. And on their way out of Babylon, Isaiah says, they were to keep their hands to themselves. They were to keep their hearts away from everything ceremonially uh, ceremonially unclean. In fact, in Isaiah 52, 12, he called, God called all of Israel as those who carry the vessels of the Lord. Well, now who was charged with carrying the vessels of the Lord? Only priests did that. Only priests got to touch that stuff. And now he's saying all of Israel are now bearing up the priestly duty together. Isaiah pictured every Israelite scooping up all the temple vessels, all the bowls and cups and tables and lamps, all that they could handle. And on their way out of Babylon, they keep themselves from bumping into anything Babylonian on their way out so as not to carry any Babylonian filth back into God's temple in Jerusalem. Well, in the New Covenant, you know what the utensils are that God uses? We are the utensils that God uses. We we are what God uses to administer worship. He doesn't use bowls and cups and tables and lamps and altars and buckets anymore. In the New Covenant, as the New Temple, we are the living utensils that God uses to bring himself glory. Therefore, Isaiah's her... He says, come out of her, Babylon, becomes, for Paul, come out of who? Them. Unbelievers. The new covenant priestly community, which we are, 
isn't to leave a place, but we're to keep all gospel-compromising relationships at arm's length. Don't touch them. Paul isn't commanding a spatial holiness, monasteries and convents. He's commanding an ethical holiness. Again, John drank from that same spiritual well, wherefore him, the Roman Empire, was Babylon, which was the nickname for all of ungodly systems and governments and peoples and such. In Revelation 18, John heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you'll not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Brothers and sisters, you are God's holy priesthood, guy and gal alike. Those who tend to the worship of God in his living temple, the light of the world. And and you ought to let this sink in. This is what Paul's driving at. What ought not have been brought into the old covenant temple most certainly ought not be brought in the new covenant temple. We'll unpack a little bit of that later. The third description Paul uses is God's royal family. Verse 18, dwelling place, priesthood, and now a royal family. Paul borrowed from God's covenant with David and 2 Samuel, the the promise that God made to David about his messianic son, Paul now says expands to all of those who are saved by that son. The church, every true believer in Christ, participates in the messianic reign of Jesus, brothers and sisters alike. We are little priests, little kings and queens in the kingdom of Christ with God as our Father. Through baptism, the Spirit endows us with the Trinitarian name. Have you seen some teams that will put the team name? A lot of times you have your last name on the jersey, but some teams will put the team name on the back of the jersey. And why do they do that? So that everybody will know what I do, I do, I do for the name on the back of the jersey. Not for my name, for the team. We all participate in, in that one common name. The team's name is more important than the player's surname. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, you and I wear the Trinitarian jersey with Father, Son, and Spirit stitched on the back. We do everything in that jersey. For all the world to see, everything we do is in the name. It reflects on the name. And whatever we as God's children do and what we say and what we think reflects the team name. Brothers and sisters, you are sons and daughters of the living God, co-heirs with Christ, with a father who is proud to call you his children. You wear his name everywhere you go. Are there, are there, parents, are there influences you don't want your children bringing into their lives and in, therefore into your home? Certainly there are. Aren't there influences you don't want your children getting involved in because that's now going to overflow into a lot of other areas and even into our own home? How much more true? How much more so with our own Heavenly Father? Paul calls him the Lord Almighty. Now, let's move outward to Paul's two-sided exhortation in 6.14 and 7.1. 
What then should we expect of a people in whom God lives, who serve God as priests, and who enjoy him as his children? Verse 14, God's priestly children avoid the spiritual influence of unbelievers at all costs. Let me say it again. God's priestly children avoid the spiritual influence of all unbelievers at all costs. Some of us with a little more gray hair remember memorizing this verse in the King James, be ye not unequally yoked. Paul's word depicts the foolishness of harnessing an an ox with a donkey to plow a field. They're mismatched. They're counterproductive. They won't accomplish any. They'll fight against one another. Perhaps it's like that three-legged race that you ran as kids. And, of course, I'm a little bit vertically challenged, and so don't don't pair me with the six-foot kid because we're never going to get anywhere. A tall kid can't share the same sack as the short kid and expect to win. Their heights are, and their strides are just too different. This is what Paul is getting at. You cannot put the ox and donkey together. You cannot put a believer with an unbeliever together. Now, most often, if not exclusively, we, we hear this verse applied to marriage. And it, a Christian ought not marry a non-Christian, and that's absolutely true. That is absolutely a way to apply this verse and what Paul means. He says as much in 1 Corinthians 7, but his context here is a lot broader And by caveat, Paul can't mean that believers are never to have anything to do with unbelievers. He can't mean there can never be any context in which a believer cooperates or interacts with an unbeliever. Elsewhere, he says, if you're to do that, you've got to get out of the world. So he's not, he's not that narrow. What Paul means is believers ought to have no business adopting spiritual advice or counsel from unbelievers. We sang Psalm 1. We don't walk in the counsel of sinners. or sit in the seat of the scoffers, stay in the way of the sinners as such. They, they have nothing. Believers don't, we don't welcome unbelievers into holy business. In other words, believers ought not adopt any spiritual perspective or vocabulary or tendencies or definitions or insights of holy business from unbelievers. Righteousness and light and Christ, the substance of Paul's other questions. Righteousness and light and Christ and believers have no business cavorting with lawlessness and darkness and Satan or unbelievers. Believers in Christ no more benefit spiritually from unbelievers than an ox benefits from a donkey when plowing a field. There's, there's just no help. We don't, we don't welcome Babylonian priests into God's holy temple to help us worship or to learn or to live. We don't invite Babylonian priests to help us identify what is worth glorifying and how. Three times in verses 16 through 18, Paul refers to what God says. Because God says. Therefore, we must not, as God's temple. We must not, we cannot indulge, much less adopt, the world's vocabulary 
about matters of righteousness and truth. We only care what God says. We don't need the world's help knowing what issues are important, what is true, what is righteous, what we ought to think, what we ought to give ourselves to. The God who created us revealed himself to us and in Christ died and rose again for us and he and he alone. He's our supreme interest. He is our supreme treasure. We care what God says. So that's the positive exhortation, uh, the negative exhortation of the isness of the church. Now, chapter 7, verse 1. God's priestly family fears God and pursues holiness at any cost. God's priestly children avoid the influence of unbelievers, spiritual influence of unbelievers at any cost. The flip side, God's priestly family fears God and pursues holiness at any cost. Again, Paul doesn't intend that we spend every day stiff-arming unbelievers like they have cooties. He says, with the rock-solid promises of verses 16 through 18, God's living temple lives a rock-ribbed life of holiness in body and in spirit. Paul's language here of perfecting holiness is to say filling up, completing holiness. Anything interfering with our holiness is to be removed and then replaced by everything that facilitates our godlikeness. As God's living temple, we are where God lives. Priests serving his glory, sons and daughters representing the Trinitarian name. Therefore, we pursue holiness not because we're scared of God, but but out of, Sinclair Ferguson says, a familial fear. It's not being scared of what God will do to us. It's what we fear we lose apart from him. How would we ever give up what we have in him? We've been undone by such a relationship that we want more of it and we don't want anything interfering with our all-out fullness of joy that Jesus said he gives to us. Our relationship with God is not fragile. It's fearful, but it's not fragile. We cherish it supremely. And we want nothing to interfere with our intimacy with God. Now, if you could indulge a couple of meditations to... Put in the pocket as you meditate on this text whenever. The, f- the first is this, that God isn't needy. God doesn't dwell with us because he needs somewhere to live. He doesn't need a home. God doesn't make us priests because he needs someone to worship him. God doesn't make us his children because he's just lonely. A God who needs us is not a God worth obeying. Our God dwells in a temple not made with hands. God rules all of creation and those in it. God owns every beast of the forest, every cattle on a thousand hills, every bird in the sky. If God needs to be worshipped, God says, I'll sacrifice whatever I want to myself then. I don't need you to go do that. God already has a son with whom he is most pleased. He doesn't need us as sons and daughters to complete anything in him. We are the spiritually homeless ones. We are the idolaters. We are the orphans. 
And out of his great love for and mercy toward us, God brings us into Trinitarian fellowship through spirit-wrought faith in Christ. God restores to us all that we lost in Adam, a heavenly home filled with Trinitarian glory, shared with a holy family. God isn't needy. And secondly, God isn't winking at sin. Whatever didn't belong in Israel's old covenant temple doesn't belong, certainly doesn't belong in the new living temple. And whatever ought not been brought there ought not be brought here, but by here, we don't mean the brick and mortar walls here. We know that, right? We mean this fellowship. We mean this assembly. We mean this congregation, this community of faith. Whatever you let in your life, you let into the temple. What you bring near in body and spirit, you are bringing near to Christ's body and spirit. Now, we often warn our children about running around in church buildings, right? Don't run in the church. Don't run on the stage, whatever. We warn them about vandalizing church property. We warn them about cussing in the church building. But as helpful and thoughtful and as beautiful as a building like this might be, it has no sanctifying power whatsoever. None. Do we give as much attention to what we let run around in our hearts and in our congregations? Because what we let run around inside us and among us is infinitely more destructive to Christ's people than what we prohibit in a building. Oh, dear friend, what have you brought into your life and therefore into this congregation's life by definition? that you ought to have nothing to do with. There are things in your life, there are things in my life that we ought to have nothing to do with. And we've brought it in the temple. What have we welcomed into our minds and into our hearts that we know isn't pleasing to the Father? And is therefore destructive for the fellowship of our brothers and sisters. Do you have, uh, George Guthrie calls them, spiritually poisonous relationships that are spilling over into the temple of God, be they online or in person? You have a pet sin. You think that you're containing. You have a contentious relationship in the church that you just hope goes away. You have a compromise with ungodliness. We are to go out into all of the world, but we are not to let any of the world into us. Wherever we are, the temple of the living God is too. Paul says that the antithesis of his temple, God's living temple, is idols. What has the temple to do with with idols? Therefore, anything not serving our priestly, familial identity in God's house, Paul says, is idolatry. Israel tried bringing idols into the temple that did not work out well for them. In Ezekiel, God says, I'm packing up and I'm moving out. You'll see me when I get back. And they saw him when Christ returned or showed up. 
So letting sinful relationships and influences into our fellowship, Paul says that's idolatry. And that is to say, that is to suggest or insist that God be okay with cohabiting with idols. What has the temple of the living God to do with idols? Do we fear God? How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Psalm 40. The God we ought rightly fear is the God who readily forgives. Paul says in 7.1, it's just time, it's time, isn't it, to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Jesus died so that you don't need those idols propping up your happiness. It's, it's just time to get rid of them, isn't it? It's time to get rid of them. Parents, we, we often stress the isness of our family. We're, we're Maxwell's. And therefore, we don't act a certain way. There's a Maxwellness about how we do things, right or wrong. We, we hope that upholds godly virtue and Christian character. Anything else is a perversion. It is unbecoming of the family name. How much more true of God's family, God's house, God's priests, God's kids? What possibly could an unbelieving world offer us that is at all beneficial to our worship? Anything that doesn't facilitate that is idolatry. What possibly could unbelievers offer us that is better than what God has promised us? What business does anything in Babylon have among us? We're the temple of the living God by God's lavish grace. We simply cannot be otherwise. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. Father, we commend this word to our hearts. We trust that you would commend Christ to us freshly. Father, may we be done with those sneaky idols that we've brought into the living temple as unbecoming of you that's destructive to us. It pollutes our joy, doesn't serve it. So be about sweeping this out of our hearts, whatever it is that we ought not have anything to do with. For Christ's glory, amen. Amen and amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's confess together what uh, we have long believed as a church and, and trust is beneficial.